Tonight's Bible reading is Mark chapter 7, verse 31, to chapter 8, verse 13. This can be found on page 1011 of the Church Bibles. The healing of a deaf and mute man. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus feeds the 4,000. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. And let's ask for God's help as we begin. Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so that is our prayer, Father, as we hear Jesus' words this evening, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us hearts that are ready to listen, ears to hear, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that we all desire a better world. Whether that's on the personal level, we Uh, want to create a life that's fulfilling or a a life for our family that's happy, or whether on the corporate level, 
We want a nation that flourishes, a world where there's peace. The trouble is that better world often evades us. On the personal level, we have all these plans, but sickness comes, or we don't do as well as we hoped in our exams, or the children struggle at school. Or on a corporate level, you know, only this week we're reminded, aren't we, that actually our leaders are far from infallible. Or our world has a tendency to quickly descend into fighting. And it's all too easy, given the evidence, to either do one or two things. Whether, um, one or two things. First of all, to become fanatical and think, actually, we can get that better world if we just try harder and harder and harder. Or, and I guess more people are in this camp, to become cynical and think that better world will never come. So let's just give it up hope. But in our passage this evening, we're going to see that there is this promise of a better world. But it's a promise that comes not as we expect, not a promise of a better world as we kind of design it. And it doesn't come in the way we often pursue it. We're going to see in this passage what this better world is. Secondly, who it's for. And third and finally, where it is found. See, what this new world is, first of all, we're going to look at this passage at the end of chapter 7, uh, the healing of the deaf man. It's a man who uh, cannot hear and probably cannot speak at all. And I don't bet you, but when it was read, it's very easy to think, well, here's another healing. Uh, we've had many healings in Mark. Here's another one. Except Mark doesn't rush this one, does he? He gives us lots of details about the man. We're told, verse 33, that he takes him to one side. Uh, we're told, um, I'm sure you've, you know, you'll ask questions about this later, if not already, why he puts his fingers in his ears and touches his tongue with saliva. Uh, and then we read that he makes this deep sigh and utters this word, epaphratha. See, why does Mark give us all these details of this miracle? Well, it could be that he's showing us Jesus' compassion. See, throughout Mark, we've seen that Jesus is the compassionate king. And here we see Jesus' compassion, I think, in the most tender way. See, do you notice, he takes this man to one side. He doesn't make him a public spectacle. And he does the fingers in the ears and the touch in the tongue thing, which seems strange to us, except that, actually, if this man is deaf and cannot speak, Actually, Jesus is communicating in a way he understands. One commentator points out that this is Jesus doing sign language. And even that word, epaphatha, that first word, was probably the first word this man ever heard in his life. And we're given that wonderful detail as Jesus brings here into this man. See, Jesus is wonderfully compassionate, isn't he? It's not a kind of, he's not harsh with the man. He, he doesn't even give him a quick zap on the way through. He spends time with him. He works on his level. And he heals him. But there could be another reason for the detail. Not only do we see Jesus' compassion, we're given yet again evidence that this really happened. So we're told where it took place in the Decapolis, 
Uh, we're told how it happened, the fact that he took this man to one side. We're told the word he used. We're told how it all happened. I mean, it's not the stuff of kind of fairy tale, is it? It reads like a blow-by-blow account, perhaps by someone who was there, if not the man himself. And it all indicates that this really happened. Jesus really walked our earth. He really met with real people. These events are testable. You could have asked the people who were there. But aside from this display of Jesus' compassion and the fact that this is trustworthy, I think there's a third and perhaps most important uh, reason we're given all these details. And um, it comes uh, through some of the words Mark uses in this passage. Um, That word for speech impediment, it probably means he couldn't speak at all. And it's a word that's very rare. It only crops up here in Mark. And in fact, it only crops up in one place in the whole Old Testament. And that comes in Isaiah 35. And the crowd's response at the end when he says he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, again, only comes one place in the whole Old Testament. And that is, again, you've guessed it, Isaiah 35. So Mark is saying to us, guys, come on, check this out. This is a hyperlink back uh, to Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35 says this, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Then, listen out for this, will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So going back to that previous slide, you'll see that actually God starts with this picture of a desert land, a, a land that cannot sustain life. And that becomes a picture in Isaiah of what his people's hearts are like. What the world is they've made. All their best intentions have resulted in a world that is as dry as a desert. But into this world comes this wonderful bloom of flowers. I don't know what a crocus is. I had to ask someone earlier. But it bursts into bloom. It's life coming into this desert. How do we know? Uh, Why does that happen, rather? Well, because we see on the next page that actually the glory of the Lord comes. And how do we know? Well, because the eyes of the blind will be opened and the deaf ears unstopped. Now, if that's confusing to you, here's the thing to, to come back to. Mark is showing us that in the healing of this one man that this new world has broken in. For one man, this is a, a transforming moment. But actually for all people, actually this is the moment that the kingdom comes. That Jesus shows that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament expectation of a new world where God will change desert-like hearts to experience joy as he describes here. Do you see this new world? It comes not through our purposes. The, The man's pretty helpless, isn't he? He just gets led aside. He just gets healed by Jesus. He cannot speak. But Jesus brings in this new world through him. 
But who's part of this new world and, and what's it like? Well, secondly, we see in this next episode that um, this new world is for all. Um, chances are, when this was read out to you, I don't think I'm the only one on this, but when it's read out, you probably thought to yourself, this sounds pretty familiar. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have noticed that we were in Mark chapter 6 and there was the feeding of the 5,000. And when we read this passage, there's a sense in which we get deja vu, thinking, actually, what's Mark doing? He's repeating himself. And in fact, some of the kind of um, professors, you know, people in universities, that sort of thing, they look at this and go, well, Mark's pretty mixed up here. There was obviously only one feed-in, and Mark has kind of described that feed-in twice. He's kind of got mixed up and ended up repeating himself. Except that doesn't really hold up when you look at the details. Because the first feed-in is 5,000, the second feed-in is 4,000. The number of loaves in the first feed-in were five loaves. The number of loaves here is seven loaves. The baskets, there were 12 in the first one, there are seven here. And the fish, there were two fish in the first one. Here the fish hardly get a mention. So there are key differences between these two feed-ins. And I think we've got to give Mark a bit of a benefit of the doubt, give him some credibility, uh, because actually, you know, he would have known that he would be repeating himself. Instead, I think a much more plausible explanation is that Mark knows their two feedings, but he's purposely put them close together and purposely described them in similar terms to show us that they are very similar. Except there is one big difference. And that one big difference comes in who is being fed. See, in the first feeding, it's the Jewish crowd. Jesus is playing to his home crowd. In this one, well, we read it takes place in Decapolis, which you'll remember from chapter 5 was the place the pigs rushed down the bank. I mean, it was as far away from Jewish territory as you can imagine, culturally. And we read in verse 3 that people come from a very long distance. And so here's the point Mark is making. He's saying that this feeding that was for the Jewish people is actually happening to people who are far away. The, The miraculous sign that Jesus brings to the nation of Israel is the same miraculous sign he brings to all people. Now, I say that and maybe we think to ourselves, well, yeah, okay, we get that. What's the big deal? And part of the trouble is we kind of automatically assume that if God has made promises, that of course those promises are for all people. But that's not obvious as you look at the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament spoke very much towards God's people of Israel. That promise to Isaiah was under the expectation it was to God's people Israel. So it's not obvious when we read the Old Testament that we're part of the program. But actually, it's passages like this that show us we are. As Jesus extends the boundaries from the Jewish people to all people. You see, Mark uh, has got this on the agenda. Look back to 7 verse 19, and you'll see that bit in brackets where Mark just puts this little mention in. In saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. See, Mark is showing us that the purity laws that split Jew and Gentile are no longer relevant because Jesus' promises of a new world go to all people. And if Jesus has broken down that barrier, 
Who are we to put any barrier in place instead? See, Mark has shown us that it's not just the establishment, it's not just the expected people who are benefiting from God's kingdom here, but it's the outsider, as Jesus puts it, those who have come from very far away. See, it's not just the respectable Church of England member or the fairly moral Middle Englander, but it is the person who has never stepped foot in a church, the person who has not given religion a moment's thought, the person in the office who perhaps just goes through their week without ever thinking about what you do at church, or the people you rub shoulders with as you go on your daily commute, who just live in a completely different world to the one you do. See, Jesus' kingdom is for all. Uh, Last week, um, no, two weeks ago, we had our baptism and confirmation service. And I don't mean to embarrass anyone here, but uh, I won't look at any of our candidates. But uh, it was a great time. And one of the things that was so great about it is because we had people from all different backgrounds up the front here. Uh, People who had grown up in church, which was absolutely wonderful, and hear how they've come to faith themselves, but also people who perhaps weren't even looking for Jesus, who were challenged by an example of a friend or something that was mentioned. And it took them on a journey to look into these things. And they discovered as they looked to them that Jesus' promise of a new world was for them as well as everyone else. See, no one is too far. Whatever you've done, whatever your background, whatever the life choices you've made, everyone is included in this promise of a new world. Except, though, there is one group that is excluded. And that's what we see in our final point as we think about where this new world is found Now, I've got to be honest with you, these final three verses, 11 to 13, I didn't really want to finish with. In fact, um, I was thinking to myself, is there a cheeky way I can kind of push push them towards the next sermon, because I'm not on, so Tim's on. Sorry, Tim. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't, because uh, actually, as I looked at these verses, um, the reason I didn't want to finish on them, because I felt they were a bit of a downer, and I'd love to have finished on sort of New World and that sort of thing. But actually, I noticed that there are links with this passage. Notice what Jesus does in response in verse 12. He sighed deeply. And interestingly, that word sigh, it comes up in verse 34 of chapter 7, as he lets out a deep sigh as he heals this man. This is the only time this word comes up. And notice at the end, Jesus leaves the Pharisees. And right at the beginning of chapter 7, the Pharisees come to Jesus. So Mark is kind of rounding off this whole section. So as much as I wanted to give these verses to Tim, I thought actually Mark is purposely wanting us to see that they fit here. Now how do they fit? Well, look at what they ask Jesus. They come, Mark tells us, to test him, to ask for a sign from heaven. Now, a sign from heaven, it's a kind of, it was an Old Testament thing that when a prophet came they had to kind of verify what they were saying 
using a sign. It's kind of like an MOT certificate for a prophet. And the thing is, as they ask for this sign, we as readers are thinking to ourselves, well, we've had this sign and we've had plenty of signs. Uh, Remember back at chapter 1, Jesus uh, is baptized, the Spirit descends on him. And what happens? Well, God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And what's just happened before they ask for a sign? Well, he's just fed the 4,000. And before that, he's healed the deaf man. In other words, there's a real irony here that they're asking for a sign with Jesus having done the sign and many signs. See, they're not really asking for a sign, are they? They're not really, this is not a genuine inquiry. This is a way of pushing Jesus away. Imagine um, you're a parent or you've got a parent who says to you, if you pass your driving test, I'll buy you a computer game. Now, I tried this morning to think of contemporary computer games and I uh, got it hopelessly wrong. I said Minecraft, but apparently um, you're all too old to be playing that. But imagine the kind of computer game you, you dream, dream of and your parent says, I'll buy you that if you pass your driving test. And so you come home and um, you wave your driving test certificate and you say, Mum, Dad, I've, I've passed. And they say to you, well, actually, you've got to do your advanced driving test. And so you go off, you do your advanced driving test, and you come back and go, look, I've got my advanced driving test certificate now. And they go, well, yeah, but you can't tow a caravan, can you? So you've got to go and do your C1 driving test. There'll be a point where you go, actually, are you just wasting my time here? And that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's a way of evading the response to Jesus. See, the Pharisees... They were the kind of bishops of their day, or the clergy. They would have known Isaiah 35 off by heart. They would have preached on Isaiah 35. They should have been the ones right there, the first to recognize Jesus uh, is bringing in this new world. But the irony is, at the end of this passage, it is them that are on the outside, and those who have come from far away on the outside who are right there with Jesus benefiting. Now, why does Mark want us to see that? Well, it's showing us, isn't it, that this new world won't be recognized by all, won't be accepted by all. See, the the Pharisees, they knew that if they were to acknowledge Jesus, well, it had very serious questions for their own autonomy. See, their pride meant that they couldn't bow the knee before Jesus. And Jesus says that his new world comes, but it does confront our need for our own autonomy, and it does confront our own pride. And their reaction here points to the reaction we're going to see at the end of this gospel. See, um, at the end of this gospel, there's the biggest sign possible as Jesus goes to the cross. And Jesus says that, The cross is the way he will bring us into his new kingdom. But what did the Pharisees do? What do the crowds do as he dies? Well, they just mock. They say, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? See, they're too proud to recognize what is really in front of them. And there are others, though, like the centurion, who see that he is saving others who look at Jesus and say, surely this is the Son of God. 
And Mark puts this here to give us confidence if we're trusting in that sign to know that this really is the way that Jesus brings in his new world. But also challenge us who are holding Jesus at arm's length to realize that there becomes a point, as Jesus does here, where he gets in the boat and crosses to the other side. Now, it might be that some of us are here tonight and we wouldn't call ourselves a Christian. And as I've said before, we we don't want to strong arm anyone. We don't want to be kind of given heavy sales tactic or anything like that. And Jesus does invite us to ask genuine questions. But don't make the mistake of dismissing it because you're too proud. Don't make the mistake of constantly moving the goalposts because actually you don't really want to believe. Let me encourage you to take up Mark's gospel, to read it for yourself. Or come on the Christianity Explore course we're running in the new year, which works through as a group looking through Mark's gospel. But for those of us who do trust, Mark has given us confidence that that new world really is here and it really is for us. See, to look at Jesus, to look at the cross, it looks so weak. It's not the way we would design a new world. It's not the way we would bring about a a transformation of the heart and of people and bring in a new creation. But it is God's way of achieving that. And as we see these signs, we're reminded that this day is going to come. God works in our lives now as he transforms us by his spirit. But actually the biggest transformation is to come in the future. And there's just a little glimpse here of that breaking through. I love the detail in 8 verse 8 where he says that the people ate and were satisfied. And Jesus didn't need to satisfy them. He could have just given them a couple of bits of bread to get them through the journey. But he satisfied them. And the people, they respond to the deaf man with amazement and overwhelmness. And it's just a wonderful sign, isn't it, of what life in Jesus brings satisfaction, amazement, being overwhelmed. So trust him. Come to him and stick with him. Let's pray. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so we pray for us this evening, our Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these signs. We pray, Father, that we would be those who respond with joy and amazement and can truly say with this crowd, he has done all things well. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, thank you very much uh, to those of you who have both uh, written questions and those who voted for them. Um, We've got three, so we reckon we're going to get through them. So, uh, Rob, first one. um, Just work out what I'm doing. Yep, this should come up. The first one is, is, why is Jesus sighing and what is the connection between the two sighs? Yeah, thank you um, for that question. Um, Why is Jesus sighing? What's the connection? Um, I think they are both instances where Jesus is 
expressing an exacerbation at the state of the world. Uh, whether that is the direct unbelief of the Pharisees, there's a sense in which they come to test him and he's just, you know, come on. Uh, and with the man, it's not saying that he's directly sinning by, you know, but, it, but it, he's a sign of uh, the brokenness of the world. And I think both of those things Jesus is sign at. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think there's a little hint here that Jesus is shown that actually he's going to take on himself that brokenness of the world. Um, there's a kind of, it affects Jesus. It's not just at arm's length. And we're starting to see with this uh, deaf and um, man who can't speak, actually that affects Jesus. And with the Pharisees, that affects Jesus. And we're going to see, as Caroline reminded me, Gethsemane, that affecting Jesus in a more profound way. And obviously as he goes to the cross in a considerable way. So I think it's a little foreshadow, if this is not too speculative, of actually that brokenness is going to be borne by him. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, linked to that, um, there's another question. Are all the healings of the blind, of blind and deaf all physical, or do some infer spiritual blindness and deafness? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Come back next week where Tim's going to be looking at the blind man, and I think, uh, uh, yeah, this will be very clear there. Um, I don't think it's less than physical, and this is important to say, these aren't kind of made-up stories to kind of illustrate a point, but Mark has purposely placed them here, I think, to get us to ask the question, why this miracle? Um, and what Jesus has done throughout this gospel is to, to say, actually, you need to listen, you need to have ears to hear, uh, this is the big theme of Mark. Listen to my son, with whom I'm well pleased. And so when we see things like this man not being able to hear, actually, yes, it's working on two levels. Yes, it's physical. Yes, it's pointing to the new world. But actually, yes, this is the state we find ourselves in. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus does all the work here, doesn't he? Takes this man to one side, heals him, and gives him um, ears to hear. But I'm not going to take, I'm going to steal Tim's funder. So come next week, uh, because I think it becomes really, really clear as we get into the next passage. Great. Thank you, Rob. Right. Our last question is, how could we constructively respond to others asking questions where we have reason to believe they're not actually seeking the truth, such as in the work environment? So I guess it's talking about hostility. Yeah, well, um, first of all, can I just say, great, if people are asking you questions in the work environment, um, I... I think that's a great situation to be in. And if you're asking this question, how do I constructively respond, it's assuming that you're getting questions at you. So well done. Keep going with that. Um, and um, you know, let me encourage you with that. Um, how can I constructively respond? I think that would be a great thing to kick around with ourselves. So thinking, you know, what does that look like in your workplace? What does it look like for others? Um, what I would say, uh, think about to my own time in the workplace, is that I, I would... There's two things I want to say. First of all, if someone's coming at me with all sorts of things and, you know, there's the kind of, you know, there's the stock sort of half a dozen things people level at you, I do want to stop someone and say, look, the God you're describing or the God you think you're attacking is probably the God I don't believe in either. So we're on the same page here. You don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God. Because very rarely are people coming to you going, actually, I, I just, just don't believe the gospel. Very often people uh, are ill-informed. So... That would be one thing. I think the second thing is that if we're feeling that um, things are slightly provocative, I think just gen gently saying to someone, 
is there anything that would change your mind? If they say no, well, I think you can say, probably not much point in us having a conversation. But generally, most people wouldn't say that. And then explore with them, what is, what is it they would change their mind? And quite often people would say, a sign or some evidence. Well, let me tell you about the sign. Let me tell you about the evidence. Mm. You know, and carry on yeah. from there. You had yeah. something you were going to add. Oh, just that I had an example of someone, and she suddenly became very hostile to everything I was saying about the gospel. And afterwards, she became a Christian. And I said to her, why were you hostile? And she said, I was just really wanting to push you really hard to check that this was true. So hostility doesn't necessarily mean someone is hostile to the gospel. They might just be just trying to work it out and almost fighting against the Lord calling them um, and actually wanting to be absolutely sure. So don't always take hostility to mean actually we walk away from them. Yeah, so 1 Peter 3.15 is a great verse to keep coming back to that we give an answer for the hope we have um, when we're asked, but we do that with gentleness and respect. You know, we can do that with confidence. And also that we set us set the Lord aside in our hearts. Sorry, I can't remember the verse now. Um, set, set our... Uh, the, sorry? Set apart Christ as Lord. Thank you, in our hearts. Uh, <coughs> so I think as we go about our business and set Christ in our hearts, actually it should provoke questions, but we want to respond even to the hostile ones with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. But do discuss, because I think this would be a great thing to yeah. support one another with. Be really good. Great. Rob, thank you very much. Thank you for your questions.